saw your cat's ass as it walked past. Yeah, the... I'm sorry. She, uh, she, she will do uh, this. She's shown it to half of England at this stage of lockdown. Really unfortunate. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and apparently over the last year, the amount of people wanting to try communal living has gone through the shared roof. So I'd like to know, Hannah, Jen, do you think you could live in a commune? Define commune because like, you know, my block of flats might be a commune, right, isn't it? It's not a commune. So define it. Tell me, what do you mean? Sort of shared living where you share a landscape and houses and there's a communal kitchen and bathroom or bathrooms and you sort of garden and live off the land, that kind of shizzle. I'm out, fuck that. Isn't that also a cult? I mean, clearly we know what would happen if you joined one. It would become a cult. (laughs) In answer to your question, I think I could. I don't know if I'd want to. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. I think I could. I grew up in a house that's probably smaller than the flat I live in now that had a minimum of five people living in it at all times. But whether I would want to would be another shared kettle of fish. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'd like you to join me at a nice farm I'm starting. Um, No, (laughs) it wouldn't be very efficient. And to prove that point, this week I spent a good five minutes trying to get into a car that wasn't mine. I envision you were using some sort of wire coat hanger by the end of those five minutes. To be fair, it was exactly the same car as mine. Exactly the same car. And it was parked two cars. There was a, another car and then there was my car. So I was really close. I mean, none of these things would have worked if I'd said it to a policeman. Afterwards, with hindsight, that car was a lot cleaner than my car. <laughs> Maybe that should have been the key that made me realise. Was your car so dirty you couldn't see it? Was that the problem? Yeah. At what point um, did you realise that it wasn't your car? What 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 finally clicked? Other than the lock, not clicking, that doesn't work, sorry, doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, the idea that there must be something, because it was just so weird, because after the cl- the flipper didn't work, you know, the clicking thing, and I gave it a minute and then tried again, and then I tried to unlock it, and then I tried, you know, that, I thought it could be the battery. But when none of the doors would open, when I put the key in the lock and the boot wouldn't open, I then realised it, it wasn't my car. And when the person in the driver's seat was just flicking you the Vs, winding down the window and yeah. going, fuck yeah. off, this isn't your car. Hello, officer. Hello, officer. There's a really weird looking woman trying to get in my car. She's got a kettle full of fish. What's wrong <laughs> with her? Oh, I'm Jen Offord and I need to find somewhere to put all my books. I'm sorry, guys. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. Uh, a bookcase, maybe. I don't have room for a bookcase, Hannah. My, my issue is Shelves. that I have a stack of books which I'm worried, I'm getting to a baby-proofing kind of stage. I'm slightly worried that the child will be crushed under an avalanche of books unless I find somewhere to put them. What about Oxfam? Oxfam might be a good place to put all those books. That's a good point. Do you know what? A lot of them are um, are obviously proofs, you know, ones that we've been sent for work. Do you think you can send those to an Oxfam shop? Do you think that's all right? Yeah, of course you can. One of the best books I've ever read, A Confederacy of Dunces, I bought from a charity shop and it turned out to be a sort of an early copy of it and I don't mean an early copy as in like a first edition it ended up being a sort of an early run copy and none of the pages were in the right order and I was, <laughs> I was really enjoying it but you'd read and then you go that makes no logical sense and then it was like a choose your own adventure you'd be like okay so there's page 45 so you'd have to flick through see where page 46 was and then you get maybe 10 pages that were in the right order and then you had to go back and find out yeah 
I've got oh, one of those. That sounds like hard work. I've got one of those. Mm. Um, you, do you remember when the the newest Bridget Jones book was published and they accidentally like no. cut? <laughs> well, it was a few years ago and they accidentally cut like um, loads of uh, David Jason's autobiography like into the middle of it. <laughs> and my um, my flatmate at the time bought a copy home for for me from work and it was it was a very confusing read indeed. Sometimes I just check on David Jason because it feels like he's one of our oldest national treasures. So I want to see how he's doing. He's still going, everyone. He's doing all right. I get very confused about who's still dead. And, uh, who's still dead? Who's dead and who's still alive these days? Is yeah. I'm not sure myself, to be honest, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I have to check every morning. I do you know what? I quite frequently at the moment wonder if, in fact, I am alive or in some well, that's kind of purgatory. Or whether I've died and gone to... But that's literally what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only person thinking that because it's, it's quite a disturbing thought. Anyway. That's why when it snowed, I thought, you wouldn't get snow in purgatory. I must be alive. That's what the Catholics want you to think. There's no snow in purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, later on, I speak to author Susie Yang about her excellent debut novel, White Ivy. Ahead of her new film for the BBC, I catch up with comedian Jenny Eclair to chat craftivism. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I care about women's rugby. And in Rated or Dated, we'll be donning a solitary dangly earring in protest as we watch 1991's Rocky V. Oh, Jen, oh, Jen, oh, Jen, oh, Jen. Don't want to hear it. <laughs> but first, prisons, the NHS and an activist in a box. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're disappointed that that Bernie Sanders meme doesn't work in audio form. Exactly, but also not in audio form. A la Bernie is basically how I've been dressed all weekend. Got my mittens on. <laughs> that was so glorious, that picture. That's like my church face was the face he had on. That whole, I'm happy for you, but I don't know why I had to fucking come. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Monday the 25th of January 2021 and we've passed a couple of unfortunate milestones on the coronavirus front. Firstly, it's been a year since Matt Hancock chaired the first COBRA meeting on COVID-19. On January the 24th, 2020, he tweeted, I have chaired a meeting of COBRA on the response to the Wuhan coronavirus. I think he meant Chinese virus there. (laughs) The Chinese virus. Official advice is that risk to the UK remains low, but we remain vigilant (laughs) and are taking all necessary precautions to protect the public. (laughs) I'm doing the um, I'm doing the little emoji with the gritted teeth. (laughs) The chief medical officer will make a further statement later today. I wonder how many people at that point could have told you who the chief medical officer was. Yeah. So a year later, underneath that tweet is quite the interesting read, being a combination of everybody panic. It's all a fuss over (laughs) nothing. And this tweet was deleted by the tweet author. I got to say, to be fair, at least the people who said it was a fuss over nothing that haven't deleted their tweet stick by their statement. Idiots, though, they might be. You currently find them outside hospitals, Hannah. Yeah. It's worth reminding people that that was the first of five Cobra meetings that Boris Johnson couldn't be bothered to turn up to. Hmm. Still, he's on top of the situation (laughs) now. Hmm. Oh, wait, because here comes the other horrible milestone, 100,000 deaths. 
Fucking As hell. I read this, the official death toll is 97,939. Although that is obviously the lower figure of those available. But even so, I can't imagine the way things are that we won't have reached that shameful figure by the time you are listening to this. Yeah. Now, we said it before and we'll no doubt say it again. But the question remains, how have Hancock and Johnson not resigned? I'm doing that emoji again. (laughs) Speaking of which, let's move on to Pretty Patel. The Home Secretary, who was asking all the important questions, such as, how did we not close our borders to visitors sooner? Hmm. I mean, never has the expression, love, you need to have a word with yourself, (laughs) been more fitting. Still, on the 22nd of January which just FYI was the year anniversary of us watching Contagion. I'm so sorry, everyone. (laughs) Patel was able to give a clear answer as to why the UK had the worst daily death toll in the world. If you call this a clear answer. We've been in this virus pandemic for about a year now. Um, And it's a global pandemic across the world. And governments respond, you know, very differently. We've seen that across the world, but based on the fact society, evidence that we have effectively been presented to us as decision makers. Now, I think the fact of the matter is we've seen just deaths around, around the world, harrowing death tolls around the world. Government has responded as facts change, information changes, working with scientists, working with medics, working with the professionals who have been guiding us throughout this. So there is no one reason as to why we have, you know, an appalling death toll. The numbers are deeply tragic, and this is a human tragedy across the world, and at home, but as I've said, you know. There'll be a wide range of reasons, and I'm sure you know, in the future, we'll all look back, and you know, we'll all look, and with a degree of humility, I would say as well, as to measures that could have been taken, some measures may not have even taken right now, and understand and look at why that may have been the case. Okay, it it's like a comprehension test when I was at school. And also, did it start with Dear Diary? <laughs> it's like an early subbing test. I had a Spanish teacher at GCSE and she used to say, you know, all of the time. It was sort of her tick as a um, or a, a verbal comma. And we, we counted up once how many times she said it in an hour, and it was 127, which is a lot. But I think Prissy Patel could give her a run for her money there. You know. And finally, just before I finish, let's revisit a topic I spoke about last spring, prisons. On January the 12th, it was reported that coronavirus deaths in prisons in the previous month had increased by 50%. Shadow Justice Secretary David Lammy said in response... It is frightening that the government has lost control of the virus in prisons. More staff and inmates will die if ministers do not get control of this pandemic. Outbreaks in prisons can also pump the virus outside of their walls, overwhelming local hospitals and infecting the rest of the community. Meanwhile, in a piece for Huck magazine, Dr Kate Paradine, CEO of Women in Prison, said... If we are giving out the vaccine based on vulnerability and risk posed by the virus, prison residents, staff and support workers should sit alongside care homes and other key workers. Prisons are a hotbed for coronavirus. This is not a question of morality, but of safety. 
Doctors don't judge a person's history when giving health care, and neither should we. Amen to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Still fucking grim, isn't it? Thank Christ for the NHS, right? Well, quite. (laughs) And if you thought the heroic efforts of our National Health Service throughout the COVID-19 pandemic meant that our Tory government would be clutching it close, well, I mean, what planet are you on? Have you seen this sewer? Instead, just a few days ago, Tory MPs voted to rip out an amendment to the government's trade bill, an amendment which prevents the NHS being sold off or undermined by trade deals with other countries. Sorry, prevented, very much past tense, because thanks to MPs voting 357 to 266 against the amendment, that protection, which was a clause inserted by the House of Lords, is gone. It's worth pointing out the amendment also covered the UK's ability to provide a comprehensive publicly funded health service free at the point of delivery and restricted the sale of patient data and the government's ability to control drug prices. But what am I like, worrying Mm. myself over something that's never going to happen? In fact, it's, quote, offensive and absurd for me to even think it, let alone say it out loud to you, dear listener. Or, so says Trade Minister Greg Hans, what a name, Greg Hans, (laughs) it's Mr Hans, (laughs) who also stated there was no need to protect the health service with legislation because, quote, the NHS is not and never will be for sale. That's basically a Tory politician saying, trust me, I'm a Tory politician. (laughs) Well, uh, consider me reassured. After all, government ministers made similar promises not to undermine workers' rights before Brexit and, oh, hang on, they've since moved to water down EU rules on rest breaks, holiday pay and overtime. Hmm. The USA's big pharma have long had an eye on the UK health market as a source of profit and without protection, we're at risk of higher drug prices, private companies having increased access to our NHS and those same companies being able to sue the government if it tries to limit their ability to profit from our health care. Yeah, this is bad news. Oh, for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not one Tory MP voted to keep the amendment in. Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, God. I've got a little bit of good news. Does it help? Let's let's Does hope it? so, please. So, the toy manufacturer Mattel has launched a new Barbie doll in its Inspiring Women series. Sorry, is this which, Hannah Dunleavy? Yeah. <laughs> which already included Rosa Parks and Florence Nightingale. The new doll is crafted after the writer, poet and civil rights activist Maya Angelou and is on sale in the US. Well, I say that, it's already sold out, but more on that in a bit. The doll comes with a teeny tiny copy of her 1969 autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which seems like it's going to be lost within 30 seconds of a kid playing with it. Yeah. But there you have it. You you find it like stuck up your kid's nose, I'm sure. Well, if it was me, if I was that child, I'd definitely be like, can I put this on my nose? Hmm. Yeah, be choking on it later. Angelou's son, Guy Johnson, said he was delighted his mother had been chosen to become a Barbie, adding that he hoped the doll would, quote, inspire a new generation of teachers, writers and activists. Priced at approximately £22, the doll has been flying off the shelves with Barbie collectors complaining they've been unable to get their hands on one. But you know what, Mick? I'm not sure how I feel about a Maya Angelou doll being kept inside the box or housed in a display case. Mm, yeah. Like, 
I know why the caged Barbie sings, right? Right. So Mattel are making this series, the uh, Inspiring Women series. When they get round to making you as a Barbie doll, <laughs> what will be your equivalent of the tiny book? My little Zoom, maybe. Um, or a packet of Rizzlers. A, a big bifter, maybe. <laughs> a big bifter. Yeah. You don't want a kid putting that up its nose. More news next week. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask, has the Crown Prosecution Service basically decriminalised rape? Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Sorry, Hannah. It feels like an outrageous question, right? But it's one that certainly holds water, which is why this week a landmark case in the High Court begins against the Director of Public Prosecutions. Brought by End Violence Against Women, EVAW, a charity coalition of women's organisations, we've talked about them before, which is represented by lawyers from the also excellent Centre for Women's Justice, the case will decide whether the CPS has covertly changed its policy and practice on charging rape cases, subsequently leading to a significant fall in the number of cases going to court. And by significant, we are talking a shocking number of cases not making it to court. Last year, there were 55,259 rapes reported. Just 2,102 of those were prosecuted, resulting in a meagre 1,439 convictions. If you like percentages, that is a 2.6 conviction rate and 3.8% prosecution rate. Indeed, police officers, including senior police officers, have spoken out publicly regarding their concerns that the CPS are now applying an impossibly high threshold before they will even bring charges. EVAW's crowdfunder to cover the cost of the case has gone viral and the charity has received hundreds of messages from those pledging gifts. For me, this one, anonymous of course, encompasses why this case is so damn crucial. I think my case is about to be dropped. I'm not an innocent enough victim. If they take my phone, they'll find my sexual history, which has been wild and joyful, but I know they'll use it against me. I think they'll use all their resources to suggest a woman like me can't be raped. But I was raped. It's astonishing, isn't it? Good God. So powerful. The CPS contests EVAW's claim, stating that there has been no change of approach in how it prosecutes rape. However, you can read about the evidence that EVAW has, which includes stats, a whistleblower statement and a dossier of cases brought to EVAW and CWJ by women whose cases weren't charged on the website nviolenceagainstwomen.org.uk. I'm going to leave you with the words from EVAW Coalition Director Sarah Green, who said, We have felt compelled to bring this case because it is very clear from the data and from what women using the support services provided by our members are experiencing that the bar has been raised on charging in rape cases, leaving women denied justice and dangerous offenders getting away with it. We have been overwhelmed by wide public support for our bringing this legal action, including all the donations to our crowdfund for this case, which indicate the strong public concern about this matter. We are here for every woman and girl who has sought, is seeking, or will seek justice in the future. Fucking hell. If you let a rapist go, the chances are they're going to rape other people. So this is 
something that's only going to exacerbate. That number is only going to get bigger. Yeah, and that's before we even touch on the fact that loads of women don't report rape because they fear they will not be believed or they don't stand a chance of being believed. And also what you've just touched on there, one of the first person responses to EVAW is saying that she she thinks that the, her rapist will have used what the police have told them that means that he's got away with it and finessed it for the next time. Yeah. Hi, Joan. Joe's just got to make it all right. Give, give mummy a cut. <laughs> I'm joined by Susie Yang, author of the new book, White Ivy. So Susie, White Ivy was published on the 7th of January and it's your first book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? White Ivy follows the story of a Chinese-American girl named Ivy Lin from when she's 14 to 27. She falls in love with a boy from her school named Gideon Spire, who is the son of a Massachusetts state senator. And as adults, Ivy and Gideon reconnect. And essentially the story is Ivy lying, social climbing, manipulating her way into marrying Gideon and into marrying into his very patrician New England family. I think this one talks about the themes of family and privilege. And I think I was just really inspired um, to write a story of how far a young woman who feels herself to be an outsider, how far somebody like that is willing to go to get what they want and at what cost. So obviously you are Chinese American, but so they say, you know, write what you know. How much of this is based, obviously not all of it, uh, I'm sure, (laughs) because Ivy, as we will discuss, is quite a character, but how much of this is based on your own experience? It's sort of, because I'm a very lazy researcher, so I think the parts (laughs) that I drew on my own experience were just details that I could populate as opposed to having to look something up. So in that sense, you know, details about the food or... So I was born in China and I went to the U.S. when I was five. But um, the first time I returned to visit relatives was also when I was around Ivy's age, so around that high school age. And I remember the culture shock and just feeling so out of place. So kind of those emotions of kind of living in both cultures, but yet not really fully belonging in one, I also drew um, from, from my own experiences. But just the Chinese, you know, heritage part, so much of it was, you know, just my friends and I growing up and what the dynamic of a Chinese family, you know, would be like, what their values would be. Not saying that obviously parents are as horrible as Ivy's parents are, but just, you know, the values that they have. Um, And then the part set in China where her mom, like her mom's backstory, so much of that, you know, was just stories I'd heard growing up from my parents, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. So incorporating those details in. So I would say it's less the emotional, you know, journey that Ivy takes. It's more of just the details of being Asian American and just kind of populating that into the book. It's quite interesting that you said that her parents are horrible. Do you think they are horrible? Because it's quite, I don't know, from reading it, it feels like quite a familiar sort of immigrant mm-hmm. experience. A lot of it, I'm, I'm not an immigrant, but from friends or people who I've spoken to about immigrant experiences, that kind of feeling of one foot in one culture and mm-hmm. another in, in, in the other. And things like, you know, a friend of mine whose father was Nigerian and his mother's Jamaica, like mm-hmm. constant threats, like, we'll send you back to Jamaica, we'll send you back to Nigeria. <laughs> was that the sort of experience you kind of had? Right. I think it's a, it's not a clear-cut line, you know, between what, what are the g- general, you know, immigrant values that a parent yeah, would have, course, such yeah. as you know, such as, you know, study hard or, you know, wanting to become a doctor. I think those things are very relatable to anybody, but particularly immigrants. When I say horrible, I sort of mean the, you know, emotional, you know, toil and abuse and blackmail they kind of, you know, put onto Ivy. And that was a really deliberate, 
you know, choice on my part because I wanted the readers to be very sympathetic to Ivy's plight. You know, I wanted the readers to sort of understand why she would want so badly to escape from her family. I don't think the way they treat Ivy is at all the way that, you know, immigrant parents would treat their children. It's more of just, you know, their ambitions for Ivy and to, you know, for her wanting to be a doctor, her wanting to get good grades, or, you know, even their method of sending her back to China, like you said. I don't think my parents ever did that to me as a punishment, but it felt very fitting for Ivy's parents to, you know, kind of want to remove her from the situation of falling in love with a boy when she's very young. So I think those things are very relatable. But I do think that, you know, the trauma that I've experienced is very specific to, you know, to, to, to her, to her parents and their lack of understanding. She's quite a cold character, Ivy. She's quite, you know, as you say, she's manipulative. She's quite calculating. She has a lot of agency. Obviously, there are different stereotypes about different immigrants, different cultures, etc., etc. And one of the more kind of common tropes, I guess, about Asian cultures is that people are very studious and, and mm-hmm. I guess, almost kind of like a bit meek as well. Mm-hmm. Ivy is nothing like that. She has agency, you know, she she absolutely mm-hmm. knows what she wants and she's going to get it. Mm-hmm. Was that a deliberate choice? I admit it wasn't so, so deliberate in the very beginning as I was planning the novel. I think the way that came to be was that I always knew that I wanted to write an anti-hero character. Mm-hmm. So I knew, you know, that this was not going to be somebody who had very strong morals and that she was going to, you know, be more of a Becky Sharp, you know, somebody who you know, what wants it at all costs. And then again, going back to the whole, I'm a lazy researcher, I thought oh, it would be super interesting to incorporate the Chinese American background. The first sentence of the book, Ivy Lin is a thief, but you wouldn't know it to look at her. That was sort of the bedrock for Ivy's character. And I was really intrigued by the idea of a girl whose personality would be very incongruous with her looks. You know, Ivy is described She's very, you know, childlike in the beginning. People wouldn't suspect her of harboring any malicious intent. And at the same time, I agree with you. I think she's quite a cold character who is very ruthless. The idea that people underestimate her and they assume one thing about her, but actually she's quite different from that. That was always very interesting to me. And I think by writing that type of character with that type of background, naturally it subverted a lot of stereotypes. Um, and I definitely leaned into that throughout the other drafts of the book. It's quite an interesting way of looking at not just Asian immigrants, of all the immigrants. I feel that the way that immigrants are portrayed often is -hmm. is that they don't have any agency, that they do just have to Mm. sort of endure the circumstances that that they're thrown into. And that's obviously not the case with lots of people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and so I thought this was a really interesting way of of viewing that kind of dynamic, that cultural dynamic. Where does that coldness come from? Is that from her upbringing? Is it from her parents? Or is it like, you know, is there something deeper, more sinister? going on there (laughs) i think it's both i think it is a combination of nature versus nurture and i the example i can think of to show that is that her and her brother you know kind of are raised in very similar circumstances but they're very different people so i think that they reacted very differently you know as we all do to being in hardship and to being you know children of immigrant parents and so she took the route of i want to get away from this i want to you know i deserve better that type of feeling um and you know her brother ends up very different so it's a combination of of both i would say and she has obviously a very complicated relationship with her mother particularly her grandmother is kind of her champion and and her savior Mm -hmm. really the the complicated relationship that mothers and daughters can have was that something you specifically wanted to explore yes and particularly the way that you know the misunderstanding like pass on between each generation um i feel like the the gap between immigrants right it's even kind of wider and harder to bridge because there's the language issue right and there's the cultural understanding so i definitely wanted to show that those are big influences and factors on why ivy and her mother have 
you know, so many conflicts. But later on in the book, um, I sort of wanted to bring it back, no spoilers, but just wanted to bring it back full circle so that Ivy understands actually, you know, her grandmother and her mother had a lot of misunderstandings between them that didn't necessarily, you know, that weren't cultural. So I, I felt like it, you know, it's just difficult, you know, we all make assumptions about our daughters and what they should be like. And then that the, the conflicts about, you know, what do I want versus what does my mother want versus what does my grandmother want that kind of gets passed on. And how well do we really know our parents' stories? I think Ivy has to reckon with that uh, later on in the book. So another thing that the book focuses on is this kind of duality or this this dual image of China as well, with one of like extreme wealth and then one of, you know, less less so and, and less glamorous. And did you want to expose people to the different side of China that they wouldn't necessarily have, have thought of? As I was working through the novel at first, I think the decision to set the wealth in China was because I wanted Ivy to have an education of sorts. You know, I wanted her to go from her family who are very lower middle class and to experience wealth. And when she got exiled to China, I thought, okay, this is a really great opportunity to sort of combine the two. You know, she can get her first taste of freedom away from her parents, her first taste of romance, her first taste of agency and her first taste of wealth. And it just happened to be set in China. And then only later on, when I look back, I thought, oh, there is, I do show both sides, you know, of China. And I was really happy to do so. But I can't say that that was always the intention. <laughs> I think more than that, it was really just so that Ivy um, could could develop her, her taste and her ideas of the difference between wealth and money. So the key thing to her is, as you say, she's a social climber, basically. She wants a better life mm-hmm. than her parents have in the States. And I think there's some really interesting points to pick up on there. For a start, the way that America... And, you know, the UK as well to, to other cultures are kind of looked at as these sort of beacons of, you know, hope and, and aspiration. Mm-hmm. And, and then the experience actually that people have when they, they're there is, is very different maybe to mm-hmm. to what they might have expected. But also, so Ivy, when she's at this sort of like posh school in, in Massachusetts, at Grove, the division there is not a racial or cultural one. It's it's wealth. It's rich and poor, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. that is what drives her. That definitely was. I wanted Ivy to feel like an outsider to to give her the feeling of you know I don't fit in and how how do I fit in? I think in terms of you know was she an outsider because she was Asian? I don't think I did consciously think about that. You know I I, I went to so many schools in the, in the states and it's interesting. I felt like an outsider, but more culturally as opposed to you know because I look different or because you know, I appear different. I do think that this book is more is more of a class commentary than you know than a race commentary. Um, I think that you know, because Ivy is just an immigrant and Chinese American, she probably, you know, kind of inherits whatever um, assumptions people have of her, like that she is very, you know, meek or very studious, which isn't true. But in terms of um, anything beyond that, no, I don't think I consciously set out to explore that in the novel. One of the references that I picked up on that I enjoyed was the uh, Babysitter's Club reference, because <laughs> I'm I'm 38, so so I'm of an age to understand that reference. And for anyone who is listening who doesn't understand that reference, it was like a series of books in the 90s, I guess, which was a circle of friends who had mm-hmm. basically formed like a, a babysitting club circled kind of thing where <laughs> I actually I, I can't remember I think they were paid weren't they I think because one of them was a, was a treasurer I think they were paid I don't I don't think they did it like just because they were girls and they loved babies or anything like that you refer to the Japanese American character Claudia Kishi 
who also, if I recall correctly, she wasn't very good at school and she was really into like fashion and art and things like that. Which again is not sort of your typical kind of trope for for an Asian character. So I wondered, where did you see yourself represented when you were a young woman growing up? That's such a funny question because I actually did not read the Babysitters Club when I was growing up. I no, I was a Sweet Valley girl. I don't know if you've heard of that series. I think it was also quite big. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I was a massive Sweet Valley fan. I think I must have read all those books. Well, I didn't read Babysitters Club, but I think the reason I included it was because it was just a small detail. You know, because at that age we're all so impressionable, and so I wanted Ivy to seek out you know somebody who she could model herself off of because she feels very much like she wants to be something, but she's just not sure what that something is. In terms of what books I read that had representation growing up, um, I think the only one at the time was Amy. I remember reading The Joy Luck Club when I was, I think I was, I was like around 11, 11, 12. And I remember being so moved by this book. And I made my parents read it and we watched the movie together. It wasn't so much that I related to their backgrounds, but I related to the the, the daughters, um, their emotions of like injustice and being forced to do things like play chess or play the, you know, play the violin against their will. And I remember <laughs> saying this to my parents, you know, look how terrible these daughters are to their kids. You know, they scream at their parents and all that stuff. And look how great of a daughter I am in comparison. And I think that was the very first book by a Chinese American author I'd read. And I, I don't think I really read any more beyond that until, you know, until I became an adult. So yeah, I think that was the only one really. I'm speaking to you on the day of the inauguration of Joe Biden. And I wondered, as a Chinese American, I wondered if you had any kind of reflections on what the era of Donald Trump has sort of done for migrant communities living in the US. I mean, I can't speak for everyone else. I can just speak for myself. It feels like it's been forever <laughs> you know it it's so long it felt so I don't know it just it felt so oppressive and I didn't I don't think I realized how oppressive it's felt until recently when it you know as it's as his um, presidency is drawing to an end I remember just for four years I couldn't read the news like it was so it was to me at least the way I dealt with it was just let me silence it as much as I could and of course you can't completely every you know people you know everybody talks and you know you you still get the news from other sources but I didn't realize how much I was being personally affected by it you know I just thought let me just just endure it and do the best that we can but it was only until this past January it felt it felt sort of like a weight had been lifted in a way it feels like oh okay I can read the news again I can think about politics again whereas I didn't even understand just how you carry that weight, you know, with you everywhere. So in that sense, it just feels so much like, <laughs> like a dark era that hopefully, hopefully that, you know, the world can open back up again, and people can have conversations again. And it just felt so polarizing and so noisy. I don't know if you know what I mean. You know, yeah, people always course, talk about yeah. like doom scrolling and all that stuff. And I didn't even have a Twitter until this last um, few months because of the book launch um, and it's I can't imagine how people who who are on there constantly must deal with kind of the everyday stress of following along what's happening in the world yeah so just feeling very much very hopeful and optimistic for the first time in a really long time one of the very exciting things that's come about as a result of this book and leads into my next question of what next for you because obviously the book the book's doing very well it's very good Thank I'm you. enjoying it it's very funny as well it's been optioned by Shonda Rhimes for a Netflix series can you tell us anything else about that so it happened last June sort of kind of out of the sky um, I knew that my film agent had been having a few readers maybe for a few months before then and then we sort of get emails um, that kicked off the process saying that some 
you know, production companies were interested in some streaming sites. And so that started the whole process of talking to showrunners and different different platforms. And so he had emailed me that Shonda was reading my book and wanted to finish it that night. And I remember just the whole night, I couldn't do anything else, but sit there and wonder, you know, what she would think about the book and that she was reading it. And, you know, because I've loved her shows growing up. I love Grey's Anatomy. And so, you know, luckily she she really liked it. And so we, you know, talked with, with Shonda Landmore and we decided to go with them. And this was, I think this wrapped up in July. And last I've heard, they're looking for writers to adapt the book um, into a limited TV series. I don't know how far they've gotten, you know, with, with COVID and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I'm <laughs> also eager for news, fingers crossed. Well, that's really exciting. I, I look forward to seeing how that translates on screen because I think... Yeah, I think there's a lot of humour to be found in there. Apart from looking forward to hearing more about that, what else have you got on at the moment? What's the next project for you? Currently working on my second book, which I started last year, uh, on and off. (laughs) And it kind of deals with some more themes of identity and comedy of manners and family. And it's also set between US and and this time in Beijing. Um, And it sort of kind of takes that outsider perspective and it looks at the Chinese entertainment industry and kind of the pursuit of fame and, you know, all the connotations, the meaning behind it. So, Susie, White Ivy is out now. I assume available in all good bookshops, not that we can go to them, but, you know, online. Where can we find you on Twitter to keep up to date <laughs> with what what you're up to? Um, I'm more on Instagram than Twitter, but, but the handle for them is the same. It's Susie Y Yang. And do you have a website? Yeah, website is suzybooks.com. Susie, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you for having me on, Jen. Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by comedian, writer and top woman Jenny Eclair. That's me. (laughs) Presenter of a new documentary for the BBC on craftivism. Thank you for joining us, Jenny. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I'm not really the expert. There are more sort of craftivist experts. I really should have a little uh, thing. I don't know whether you've had any of them on the show before, but there are big names in the craftivism world, uh, which I am not one of the big names. I'm I'm really just the glue that sticks this programme together. Well, having watched it this morning, I did take some notes of some people that will be really interesting to talk to. good, good. Yes, I work with some really, really lovely people. I mean, there's a woman called Sarah Corbett, who I think is sort of head girl of craftivism. <laughs> and uh, she sort of invented this movement called the Craftivist Collective. And she she can send you kits around the country. They're craftivist kits. So if you wanted to get sort of involved in the movement of craftivism, which is activism by craft, rather than shouting, it's making your voice heard without shouting. Difficult for me because I'm, of course, quite a shouty type of person. But I'm also a crafter, so it's been, it was good for me to be involved with these people and learn something. It was a great film. I really enjoyed it. And like you say, you met some great people, but I couldn't help but feel there was also something in it that was joyous of you just being in the outside world and working again. That must have been something that was great for you. 
Well, I'm, all, I'm always grateful to be working time, <laughs> let's face it. To be honest, chronology of this uh, of the filming is a weird one because we started it, I think, in February last year. And then we were filming in March and it was getting increasingly obvious that something bad was coming our way. And I was getting very sort of hysterical about, I was wearing um, silicon gloves and I wasn't wearing masks because masks at the time weren't the thing. And I remember we had a couple of nights, well, one night where we had to stay in a hotel. Can't remember where now. Uh, my geography is really, really bad. It was somewhere in this country anyway. Yeah. And the assistant, there was a really beautiful assistant, lovely girl. We had shared a train together. Well, we didn't share a train. I was in first, actually. I was starting to insist on getting first class tickets because I just didn't want to be on crowded trains, which sounds, makes me sound like a snotty bitch, but I live with quite an, an older man. So I had taken a train journey with this girl, and then we were in a minicab together for 45 minutes, then we had dinner together. And in the morning, I saw her in the hotel lobby, and she looked like shit. I mean, she was a beauty, this girl. And I, from a distance, I went, fuck me. <laughs> you look like shit. She said, I'm not well, and um, I don't want to go anywhere near you. Turns out, covid not only did she have COVID, came down with it that day, but uh, the cameraman and the sound man did. Wow. And I didn't, which seems quite lucky. Filming was obviously halted and then everything was halted. And then as we came out of that first lockdown in, was it July? July, something like that. Something like that. It was the summer. We were sort of allowed out again for a little bit more filming so we managed to do as much as we possibly could in the sort of lovely, as a, a kind of, you know, that euphoric yeah. few months of, of, you know, freedom, our last bit, bits of freedom, really. Though I, I mean, compared to most people, I've been very lucky last year because I also managed to film another series in um, November. Oh, really? Uh, which is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so kind of looking back, it was, we were crazy lucky. Yeah, no COVID testing and it was just all done on social distancing and it's a it's a drawing program called Draws Off yeah that's in March anyway but the craft of ism is on February the 1st and then it'll be on the BBC iPlayer because it's going out on BBC4 so you don't have to watch it at 10 o'clock on the 1st of February because uh, it's quite late 10 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly you know thinking about bed I'm glad you find it joyous because I am such a huge fan of, of people who create stuff and make stuff. I, you know, the, this is my happy place. I love painting myself. I'm not a great crafter. I can't knit, really. I, I cannot crochet to save my life. But I, I do love watching people being able to do such clever things with their hands. Well, I think a lot of the point of what you were, you were driving home with this was actually you don't have to be good at it. You just have to be prepared to roll your sleeves up and have a go. <laughs> there is that, but I do think some of the people we, we managed to get on with the Craftivist show are really good at what they're doing. There's a, a knitter called Deadly Knitshade. Yeah, she was brilliant. Who, yeah, really, really lovely girl, Lauren Lauren O'Farrell. And she first came to, to, to light. She, she made this brilliant thing. It's this massive octopus or squid, giant squid made out of plastic bags to draw attention to the fact that, you know, marine life and sea life is, you know, the terrible pollution that we have in mm. the oceans. And this is really what craftivism is all about. It's about using your wit and your intelligence and your hands and your brain and your soul and your whatever to make things that 
have a point yeah. and leave them in public places so that people are reminded of things that they might have otherwise forgotten about. There's a, a lovely woman called Helen who makes these tiny little felt pants and leaves them in public toilets and things to yeah. remind girls that, you know, come hell or high water, you must have your smear test. I mean, I think even now in a pandemic, it's something that shouldn't be left too long. Absolutely. You know, mask up, visor up, get your bottom out, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they use that as a slogan? I want to know. Uh, you know, it's there. They Better than hands-free space, isn't it? <laughs> get your bottom out, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I have to say that this film did, I didn't realise I had preconceptions about craftivism, and I obviously did, because I was expecting this to be very female, very middle class, and very white. And actually, yeah. it was none of those things. No, I think craft as a whole is sneered at because it is it is seen as a sort of, you know, fussy 60 plus, you know, the retired uh, woman making stuffed owls for absolutely no reason whatsoever. <laughs> but in fact, you know what, there usually is a reason for the stuffed owl and that, you know, it doesn't even matter. Part of this sort of sneering at older women, really, yeah. that is a bit of a problem. And craftivism isn't as smug as people might imagine. In fact, it's it's the least smug thing. I'm not a natural craftivist because it's it's um, it's a movement that requires selflessness and making things and leaving them. You see, I'm very jealous of the things I make. I want to guard them and keep them, yeah, and preferably sell them. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, these are people who are making beautiful things for nothing and and leaving them places so that people get the message. Yeah, I've needed some persuading with that. But you're right, it's not just women. And I think that there's a wonderful bloke. Unfortunately, I couldn't meet him because of the, the pandemic. Peter, Peter from Liverpool. Yeah. Peter Carney, who makes these fabulous banners. I mean, I think his most famous banner was one in tribute to the people who died in Hillsborough. He's a, you know, a, a proper, proper geezer. Yeah. Making very, very symbolic, wonderful kind of fuck-off banners and, you know, he couldn't be more male. And then the other male thing that I think is interesting is the knitters from Chile. I um, love them. They're great, aren't they? They're so dishy as well. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, and they, they, you know, Chile, South America on the whole, can be very sort of difficult to, you have to be a heterosexual male. Otherwise, you know, people mm. kind of spit on you and your life can become quite difficult. So it's a a way for Chilean males to kind of take to their streets with their knitting needles and knit publicly to basically say, look at us, we are, you know, we are men, we are proud to knit. And it's become a big old thing. And it's and their work is fantastic. Yeah, you know? yeah it was. The first half of this film was, was fun. The second yeah. half I found actually profoundly moving in parts. Because obviously, you, you firstly, you go and talk to Rose, who has that crochet that her mum started when she came over on the Windrush yeah, and never yeah. finished. And she finishes a bit. And I thought that that was wonderfully symbolic of like the idea that the work is never done when it comes to the Windrush scandal. Then yeah. you went to see the AIDS quilt and then you went to see uh. the Hillsborough thing. And you describe yourself as, I think you say, a tough old bird in this and I would describe myself like that and I actually spent I think about the last half hour of this on the verge of tears I thought it was very moving 
I wasn't able to meet Rose and the, and the Dorcas Club chunk uh, because of COVID. Uh, I, uh, also, I couldn't go to Liverpool, but I'm really grateful that they did, ma- they did manage to film from a distance. I was able to see the AIDS quilt, which is something that I think is terribly sad that it doesn't have a, a resting place. It doesn't have an exhibition space. Uh, I think a lot of people are very aware that there is an American AIDS quilt yeah. in, in memorial to, uh, you know, the thousands of young men who died of AIDS in, you know, this, the last pandemic in some respect. Uh, have you been watching It's a Sin on Channel 4? I, I haven't yet. It's about, wonderful. About five years ago, I did a lot of reading. I had had a copy of And the Band Plays On by yeah. Randy Schiltz on my shelf for 20 years and I'd never read it and I read it and I immediately became fascinated and I read loads of stuff by Larry Kramer and I read all about Cleve Jones and the quilt then and it's just it's just horrific a generation of men just lost I can't I can't I can't say how much that moves me the homophobia in this country in 1981 which is I was 21 because I was born in 1960 so in my lifetime this hideous hideous Tiny England, small-minded, nasty, nasty, vicious, um, racist and sexist and homophobic attitudes absolutely drenched the nation. It's a Sin is a brilliant uh, Russell T. Davis drama about the AIDS crisis. And the quilts, what's really shocking, and I, I think it didn't strike me until I saw some of the UK pieces in person, is they are coffin-sized. Yeah. So they are big. They are the size of a man because they are there to symbolise a dead man. And uh, so they're, they're six foot by three feet, whatever the size of a coffin is. And that is really heartbreaking and really shocking. And some of, but some of them are also really funny because people have embroidered the personality of the mm. dead man into the quilt. You know, they might be, his sort of car keys might almost be attached. You know, the, the the wooden plate that was on his bedroom door with his name on it, this sort of thing. These The youth of these men, quite often. Yeah. And women, because, well, uh, you know, there are quilts in memorial to, to women. And as I say, I mean, if you put the, the quilt together, the UK quilt, it is huge. I mean... But I do think there is an opportunity possibly to maybe take over the turbine hall in Tate Modern and and at least, you know, show it because it could go on the floor then. Mm. Yeah, they should definitely do that because, A, I think people are, are, have become interested in it because yeah. of the pandemic. But also it, it, it's a shame that it takes TV programmes to get people interested. But if It's a Sin achieves that, then great. Well, sometimes drama is, is a really good way because it personalises the story mm. and it takes it away from it being statistics and yeah. very you know, and, and science, which can be very difficult for people to understand. But if you sort of are watching people that you identify with on the screen mm. and there's music and there's dancing and there's, you know, relationships going on, you, you can learn more. It's been a great reminder for me. And I also think that as we're undergoing this, this terrible pandemic at the moment, Part of the problem has been with this one is that there is ageism in this country, terrible, terrible ageism. Gotcha. You know, there has been, up to a point, this not really caring if a load of old people die. Yeah. And I think it rings similar bells with the AIDS pandemic epidemic that, um, you know, a lot of people then did not care if a load of gay men die. It's, yeah. it's... There's a bit, we've mentioned already, Deadly Knit Shade, 
where she talks about how she came to craftivism after recovering from cancer. And she said craftivism was her way of basically shouting, I'm still alive. And that made me wonder what it's going to be like when we come out from lockdown. And hopefully we are on the other side of that. What do you think the world is going to look like when we are the other side of this? Craft will have helped a lot of people through. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, Lauren tells, uh, uh, you know, a fascinating story about her blood cancer and how long she was in treatment, how long she was in hospital for. And it's, you know, quite sobering. And, you know, she learnt a lot of skills while she was recovering. I think that for somebody like me who, you know, is, is, is slightly thwarted on the live side of performance at the moment, mm. I'm very fortunate because I'm, you know, also a writer. I have kept myself sane, particularly in the first lockdown when it was such a shock. I did a drawing a day. And now, almost a year on, I, I can see improvement in myself as an artist. But not everyone can. You know, it's, mm. it's fine for me. I think that, you know, I contradict myself in some respects saying that, you know, this an ageist nation and we don't really care about old people dying. But I have to admit that it is a lot easier to deal with this pandemic as a 60-year-old woman with a big old career behind me. I am consumed sometimes by horror and upset and panic about my daughter's generation, about the lost opportunities and mm. the wasted ambition and the all the all the talent, all the talent that is 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 sort of not going I don't believe talent evaporates, but it is being wasted at the moment. Yeah. It's so hard for creative people to make a living at the moment. And how do you re retrain? What do you do? I mean, so uh, you know, I'm comfortable. I live in a house. I've got a, a tiny garden, but I live near a park. There's only two of us in this house. There's plenty of space. I don't have to homeschool. I've got a big old jigsaw on the kitchen table. I've got my paints. I'm, I can afford, you know, well, I've got a load of Amazon packaging to paint. Mm. That's what I use as, as my stuff. I can afford my hobbies. A lot of people can't even afford their hobbies. Yeah. You know, that's where some people are incredibly resourceful. But it's really, really tough. I mean, I hope that there is a great big explosion of talent and creativity after all this. I mean, you know, that would be the dream that we can vaccine our way out of it. And there will be, everyone will be going out every single night of the week just seeing stuff and celebrating. Yeah. Absolutely. And eating out and drinking out. But, you know, that that's when I'm optimistic, when I'm pessimistic. I, I can't I can't see com us coming out of this for two, three more years. OK, mm. you mentioned comedy. Can I ask you what your sort of best hope for the comedy industry is in all of this? Because obviously it's been horrific for people. Mm. What's really galling is that I noticed on Twitter the other day that Tim Minchin is going to be doing a gig in Perth in Australia in February <laughs> in front of 5,000 people. You know, they are culturally getting back up on yeah. their feet. I think Australia is down to zero number of cases on, you know, and has been for a while. Mm. So there is frustration, there is fury, but there is also... Some people work really well online. Some people have that sort of instant and immediate. There's some very funny you know, tiny sketches and solo mm. bits and bobs. And some people find uh, a character that works very well uh, on social media. But I don't think everybody works like that. You know, some of us really need to feed off a, an audience. 
I don't see myself doing stand-up on social media at all. I could see myself doing a solo show which was recorded at home and put out, you know, to create my little own black box of a theatre in my own house yeah. and just, you know. But the idea of a, an open Zoom meeting with loads of people watching live, it, I think it would break my heart. I think that I'm too ingrained in what stand-up is to me and what a show is to me mm. and, you know, the walk from the dressing room to the wings and the, the pre-show music and my tour manager and the whole shebang of it. I don't need to hog airtime, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been so lucky in my career. You know, if that is it for me in terms of performing, then God, I've had it lucky. Yeah. You know, the last show I did in my 50s was the best selling show I've ever done. It took me to Australia, it took me round the country over and over. I did, you know, there were venues I did seven times with it. You know, it's yeah. ridiculous. The new show was being written last year. It was called 60, because I am. And I lost momentum with it when I realised that, that it wouldn't happen. Yeah. So that is sort of ready and waiting to be picked up again. Occasionally I look at it and I think, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is. So, Jenny, tell me, have, what's next? Have you got a book in the works we can look forward to? Ah, well, I have, but it's a slightly cheating one. Um, I don't know how much I'm really allowed to say, but it's a young adult fiction. So it's a teenage book because I I found it very difficult, like I think a lot of writers, to decide where to go. Uh, if I wrote another novel, you know, where, where do you set it? Do you set it in 2019, pre the pandemic, forever and ever? Mm. Is everything always, you know... Uh, yeah. the summer of 2018 or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I, I, it's going to be interesting as, as new books come out, you know, what writers have decided to do, because I don't think we have seen yet the new tranche of pandemic novels. I've set it not in the olden days. It's yeah. not sort of, you know, bonnets and clogs, but it is not in this century. That's interesting. That I think that might happen a lot. Maybe more books will be set in an alternate universe and things like that. I think that that's true. And I, I also think there will be some kind of Argosaga lockdown books. You know, the the family who had to stay, you know, or everyone came home to roost. Yeah. And that, that Christmas, you know, that sort of thing. I can see that quite easily. But, you know, the crime fiction, the thriller, it's it's very hard mm. for people yeah. to writers to to sort of make their world so small i mean loads of people will be doing it it's going to be interesting to see what comes out yeah definitely jenny this has been absolutely brilliant just as a reminder craftivism making a difference is on bbc4 on monday the 1st of february at 10 p.m yes and will be on the iplayer afterwards for people yes. who go to bed well <laughs> early <laughs> for me i might catch up with it oh i'll be watching it at 10 o'clock you must be joking i'm like this you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we put the patriarchy in the sin bin as we discuss all things women's sport so let's talk about Wales and Bristol fly half Eleanor Snowzill, who started a movement over the last couple of weeks, shining a light on, once again, online abuse faced by female athletes and, in particular, rugby players. 
A bit of background, you might remember a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that the Women's Six Nations Rugby Tournament had been postponed until later on in the year because of COVID. Well, alongside that, the Women's Premier 15s League was also told it had to take a two-week break with a restart due on January the 30th, although I don't know what the update is on that. As I'm recording this on the 26th, nothing has been confirmed yet. As an aside, the BBC Sport article on this sets the context thus. The league has been given elite sports status by the government. It feels a bit insulting that they felt the need to include that but there we go and that might not seem particularly relevant but in my view it all feeds into an environment where Snowzill understandably was not in a mood to be messed with when faced with more of what she's previously described as relentless online abuse in an impassioned statement issued on twitter Snowzill pointed out the paradox of not caring about women's sport with actually bothering to comment on it and i think that that is <laughs> that that is something that has always struck me as odd and she challenged do those men trolling articles about women's rugby genuinely think we're going to believe when they say they don't care? Are they really that stupid? The simple act of commenting to declare the statement proves the opposite to be true. And she added, hashtag I care about my sport as do millions of others. Speaking later to Jeanette Kwachi on the BBC Women's Sports Show, Snowzill said, It doesn't affect us personally as athletes. It doesn't bother me that these people don't care about our sport. What bothers me is the environment that it creates. Young boys and girls looking at that post, seeing how many people don't care about it. And then she went on to detail someone calling her, and I quote, the worst word you can call someone just for having posted about it in the first place. She said it's bullying and you've got to call them out for it. Hear, hear. Well, Eleanor, fuck them. The bunch of worst words you could call someone because it's backfired spectacularly with the whole rugby community adopting the hashtag I care to pay tribute to women's rugby players and highlight the nonsense they put up with. And it really is just nonsense. It, it seems a bit pointless to tell people not to troll female athletes online because I doubt anyone who does that will be listening to this podcast. But, you know, don't. So look, some potentially better news for England women's rugby at least, as the Rugby Football Union has said that players will be given the opportunity to try and play for both the Olympic Sevens team and the Rugby World Cup team, and that a limited number of players will be able to play for both. The Rugby World Cup starts six weeks after the Olympics on September the 18th, or at least it's due to, who knows? I'm not sure where all this will fit in with the postponed Six Nations tournament, but what I will say is that I do hope athletes across all sports, because I think this should be a real concern in men's football aren't being flogged for the sake of some lucrative sponsorship deals we're seeing a really congested set of fixtures especially in men's football at the moment i'm sure someone is thinking about all of this but um, i certainly hope they are anyway that's all from me this week got any thoughts on any of this apart from trolls the worst word you can call someone give me a shout on twitter but please don't call me the worst word you could call someone because I, I won't like that very much i am at inspire Jen, and until next time Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film, which gave both Mickey and I a new catchphrase for life, did we watch this week? This week, we watched Rocky V, released in the UK on the 25th of January 1991, which makes it 30 years old today as we record. So, Rocky V, as the name would suggest, is the fifth, and as we thought at the time, final instalment in the franchise, charting the life of champion boxer Rocky Balboa and those around him. To backtrack a little for the uninitiated, the original Rocky film was released in 1976, written by lead actor Sylvester Stallone and directed by John G. Avildsen, who also wrote and directed Rocky V. 
The original film was nominated for ten Oscars and won three, and it told the story of every man, Rocky Balboa, a down-on-his-luck small-time boxer living in a poor area of Philadelphia, who is relentlessly pursuing shy local lass Adrian, played by Talia Shire, sister of Paulie, played by Burt Young, as Rocky strives for a better life. Anyway, he eventually gets the gig and gets the girl when he's catapulted into fame after fighting heavyweight world champion Apollo Creed. If we look at the critical acclaim for the two films, Avildsen won the Academy Award and Directors Guild of America Award for Best Director and was nominated for the BAFTA and the Golden Globe as well. And for Rocky V, the Razzie Award for Worst Director. And that probably tells you much of what you need to know about how the original series went down before the franchise reboot in 2006. The films all essentially take the same format. Rocky's challenge, looks like he might lose it all, ultimately wins. But Adrian's hair and Rocky's robes get more elaborate as the series continues. This is until we find Rocky in the final instalment, fresh from bringing down communism in Soviet Russia and beating Ivan Drago. He's facing retirement after being told he's sustained brain damage from his years as a fighter and could die if he continues. Enter Don King, sorry, George Washington Duke, a boxing promoter and right twat who will not take no for an answer as he tries everything he can to get Rocky back in the ring for a mega payday. But wait, it's all gone massively tits up because Paulie, who's basically Ziggy Sabotka from The Wire, but much, much angrier, has gone and lost all their fucking money by being an idiot. And so the Balboas, Rocky, Adrian and son Robert, played by Stallone's real-life son, Sage as well as Uncle Paulie, are dispatched back to the mean streets of Philly where they grew up, until Rocky meets young fighter Tommy Gunn, played by actual boxer Tommy Morrison, who gives him a shot at redemption and a chance to win again when he asks Rocky to be his manager. But at what cost to a rebellious Robert? And by rebellious listener, I mean he has an earring now. Don King absolutely will not fuck off. Tommy Gunn gets poached. And in time on a tradition, it all ends up in a massive punch-up. But what did we learn other than to take better care when we're signing power of attorney over to someone? Every man in this film is basically a selfish prick and the toxic behaviour of each and every one of them in every, like, in every single Rocky film is attributed to their fundamental insecurity about where they came from and a desire for better lives. But it's also about the internal struggle of life. If you get knocked down, like Chumbawamba, can you get back up again? So, Hannah, Mickey, had either of you watched this film before? I thought I had, but having watched it, I think if I had watched it before, I would have actually refused to watch it this time. <laughs> so it must have been a no. I think I've seen it. I think I've seen it, but it hadn't made any lasting impression on me. Do you want to start, anyone? Tell me your thoughts. Hannah, I think you should tell the listeners what our catchphrases are. Yeah, um, I'm going to go with touch me and I'll sue you. And you, Mickey? Yeah, my new catchphrase, which I've used over the weekend, is get up, you son of a bitch, because Mickey loves you. (laughs) (laughs) It works a treat. Yeah. I mean, I I hated it. I quite enjoy a shit film, but this wasn't shit enough to enjoy. It was just shit enough for me to hate it. I enjoyed it slightly better when Mickey started watching it and we WhatsApped each other and sort of watched it at the same time, which meant I wasn't quite so alone in my misery. But yeah, I had lots of problems with it. Adrienne's behaviour is really erratic in it. How do you mean? 
Well, on the one hand, she's like really pushy and she's like, no, you're not going to do that. And on the other hand, she lets Rocky put their son out of their house and doesn't argue about it or complain about it. Even when Paulie says, I'm not going to change the sheets just because you're coming to stay. So her concern for her son seems quite slight and less than her concern for her husband, which seems to be all encompassing. So I found that a bit odd. I uh, found the press pack to be utterly That's ludicrous. Strange, um, wow. yeah. Beyond ludicrous, um, the press pack. The first bit, there was a, the highlight was when he, he asked a question and then one of the journalists turns around to the rest of the pack and goes, come on, you guys, we need to know. And it just the weirdest thing, but that wasn't as bad as the press pack that basically slagged off Tommy Gunn's girlfriend to his face <laughs> and called her a slag, basically. Yeah, so I found that quite hard to watch. I just thought the acting was really genuinely terrible. It reminded me of, you know, in um, every so often in sitcoms, they'll do this thing where they don't really have a proper episode. I think they're called clip shows. And they'll say, oh, do you remember when we all... And then they, they'll show bits of old shows. And yeah. that's kind of this, what this felt like. There was huge chunks of Rocky Four in it. There was huge chunks of Rocky Two in it, I think. All of the stuff with Mickey mm, that we saw. Yeah. So it felt like if they are the best bits of it, things that aren't from this film, that's a really, like, that film oh, is Oh, yeah. Bad, I mean, I think. I think it's undeniably a cash cow. But I do think that one of the things it actually does quite well is that it does capture the kind of bleakness that Rocky feels in his life. And I think the reboots do that quite well as well. And, like, the interim films between the first Rocky and the final Rocky are just kind of, like cartoon fluff really although some people try to argue that rocky 4 is like a bit more serious or something i think rocky 4 is worse than this one to be honest do you know who disagrees with you jen who sylvester stallone sylvester stallone who, yeah. in an interview with jonathan ross gave rocky yeah. 5 zero out of 10 yeah i think it's uh-huh. i think it's better than rocky 4 but i wonder if that is sort of the problem with this one i don't know what you guys think of it obviously you think there are a lot of problems with it but i wonder if the problem with this one is that it doesn't really know what it's trying to do it doesn't know if it's kind of a bit fluff or if it's trying a bit too hard to be serious but just missing the mark i think the problem with it for me is it is pretty boring almost all of the time i didn't find it boring i i actually i mean i know it's shit obviously it's shit but i actually enjoyed it as a bit of fun to me it was the the plot faults in it are so it's like they decided where they wanted to go and then they tried to work out a plot that got them there Mm. And, like, for example, the thing about power of attorney... That makes no sense at all, that bit. It makes sense. Yeah. Why would Paulie have power of attorney for them no, anyway? it made no so sense. So that, that, yeah. that makes literally no sense. And then also there's the idea that, that Rocky can't even make any money off advertising because he's got an assault charge against him. And although I think that might affect now, I don't think at the time this was made, 1990, that would have necessarily made a lot of difference to his ability to make money. Just as I was saying to uh, Mickey Noonan this morning via email, no one seems to have a problem with Mike Tyson. I've got a problem with Mike Tyson, but it doesn't really affect his finances, sadly. (laughs) I'd also like to say, it felt to me that Stallone was doing an impression of Stallone playing Rocky. It felt so weird. It felt so weird, like the way he talks. And I cannot, I cannot chat about this without mentioning the fact that his dirty talk to Adrian is to tell her he's going to violate her like a parking meter. Parking meter. Yeah, I wrote that down. It's, it's... I missed that. He says, I'm going to take you upstairs and violate you like a parking meter. And she says, it'll cost you a quarter. And they do all of that (laughs) in front of their son. 
There's also an- another bit that I've written down, another where um, basically when Tommy Gunn, which, again, nobody makes a pun on his name in the headlines when they write stories about him, and therefore that would not happen. If you got a boxer called Tommy Gunn, you would be punning on that all the oh, time. Oh, no, he does. He calls him Tommy the Machine Gunn. Yeah, the Don yeah. King character does, but not the journos. Not the journos. Anyway, it's when he first turns up and he wants to spar and he basically clubs the shit out of the guy that he's sparring with. And then he says to Rocky, oh, come on, like, would you let, would you train me? Would you train me? And then he says, if I do something you don't like, I'll leave. And I thought, well, (laughs) I mean, literally everything you just did just proves that to be untrue. So I don't know. It makes Rocky seem like he's not just a bit dim that he's actually, you know, like got the mental age of a five-year-old or something in this. It it really, really amps up how Rocky isn't the smartest. Well, he has sustained brain damage. Well, that's vetoed, isn't it, in Rocky Balboa? Exactly. They say it's misdiagnosed, Mm. which explains why he takes a massive pummeling and actually there's no effect, really. He still goes on to, sorry everyone, spoiler alert, champion over Tommy Gunn in a very long street fight. Yeah, I was confused about how he didn't then die in that bit it doesn't really make sense and obviously then he does come back again spoiler alert he does come back in rocky balboa the reboot to then fight a much much younger man than him (laughs) my favorite bit was the bit where tommy's driving away and rocky's like trying to persuade him not to drive away and holding onto the side of the car and tommy's driving away so slowly it's so ridiculous <laughs> he's going so slowly but then when he slams his brakes on it goes like and it was just it made me laugh i actually rewound that and watched that bit again because it was funny <laughs> tommy's hair is something else i did want to ask a question actually because um because rocky five is basically exactly the same as creed like the plot is basically the same so why is, apart from obviously the beautiful face of Michael B. Jordan, why is Creed so much better than this? It's just written better. You can have the same plot, but it's all in the writing. And also you've got the character involvement of Creed being Apollo Creed's son. So obviously there's a big link there to the first Rocky and, and the second one. There's this whole friendship tie that's just not there in the fifth one. So I want to ask you a question. Mm. It's a fashion question. I went to school in Bedford. If you know anything about Bedford, you'll know it actually has quite a large Italian population. And all of the Italian boys at my school used to wear their jumper tucked into their trousers. And it used to really make me laugh. And I hadn't thought about it for years until I saw that in Rocky Five, quite a lot of people wear their jumpers tucked into their trousers. And they are also supposed to be Italian, you know, second or third generation is that a thing that you remember seeing or is it an Italian thing? No, I think that's an 80s thing. And I think because this would have probably been made in 89 or 90, I guess, uh, if it was released here in 91. None of the non-Italian boys in, in my school tuck their, tuck their jumper into their trousers. Has anyone been to Philadelphia? Yes, I have, yeah. Obviously, the Rocky statue isn't where it is in the film the rocky statue is down the side of the metropolitan museum of art rather than at the top of the stairs but nonetheless everyone does run up and down the stairs constantly there because of rocky um and when i was there it was like the hottest day it was so fucking hot it was just unbearable everyone was just fighting over the small bits of shade to stand in 
But I was watching everybody like run up and down the stairs and this guy turned up and he was, I don't know, 20s or 30s and and he was like, he just had the smallest, smallest pair of running shorts on and that was it. And his body was really shiny, which was probably sweat actually, but it looked like he'd oiled himself up. And he did a huge amount of posing at the bottom of the stairs and like stretched and everything. And then he stood there. I think he was waiting for people to watch. Do you know what I mean? It was literally like a spectacle he was about to perform. And he put his foot on the first step and started running and he fell over <laughs> and just smashed his face into it. And it was one of the most glorious things I've ever seen. It was one of the things that I thought, I wish that I had been taken enough by that look to start filming it because then I would have caught like that spectacular fall on video. Yeah. 250 quid. Thank you. Yeah. You've been framed. I walked up the stairs because I'm a sensible human being. I would have walked up them too. There's a lot of stairs, mate. So it's probably time to ask the question, did Rocky Five have you flying high? Are we rating or dating this film? It's dated and I feel like you violated me like a parking meter. I don't even know. Can How do you even yeah. violate something like a parking? How do you violate a parking meter? I don't understand. You stick your cock in it. Okay. Gonna cost you sorry. a quarter. If yeah. I had a cock, I probably would have. I probably would have realised that. Anyway, sorry, Hannah. I think we know your answer, but yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say yeah. Dated. It's terrible. What I will say is though that Rocky Balboa or Rocky Six is actually a much better film. It's I don't like film, that one. Rocky Balboa. I don't like that one at all. I have to say, I found it miserable. But Creed and Creed Two, I like very much. What are we watching for the next rated or dated? Hannah Dunleavy, I believe it's your turn to potentially violate us like some sort of traffic enforcement. Well, I think I am going to violate you, but, <laughs> but, 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 I am going to pick the jazz singer, the, not the original jazz singer, but the Neil Diamond version of the oh, jazz yeah. singer, which is 40 in early February in the UK. I think it originally came out like the, the year before, but anyway, I have seen it once as a child and I can't really remember anything about it, but the guy who founded uh, the Golden Raspberries described it as one of the most enjoyable bad films ever made and I think that's what we need right now Standard Issue for all women